Have you ever wondered what it takes to land the small bush plane in the middle of the Amazon River? Well, if so, then you're in the right place, because today on the Urnet Podcast, we're talking missionary aviation with Bob Hamilton. Roll it! the internet podcast tonight we are actually in person with mr robert hamilton bob hamilton sorry um and yeah we're gonna have an interview about missions aviation for about an hour mr hamilton thank you for being here oh it's my pleasure i've been looking forward to this yeah so you want to give me like a brief one minute intro on who you are what you've done in life and where you're at now one minute for a, a whole life that's that's going to be quick yeah um i'm Robert Hamilton, as you said, and yeah. I go by Bob, and I'm married and have six children. And for the first 45 years or so of my life, I, I worked just in school, like most people, and graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 1976, and then started working in aviation from that point on, about 23 years. And in 1995, Dr. Bob Cropsey, Right. was at our house and encouraged me because I'd always been interested in, in aviation. And he said, well, ABWE, the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, is looking for missionaries and pilots, and yeah. you ought to apply. So we did. And in 1999, we went to Brazil. And we were there for 22 years. And we're now coming back. We had a medical problem, so both my wife and I. So yeah. we, we came back, and, and now we're doing our last furlough and looking forward to retirement. Yeah. So how did you, going way back, um, obviously you're interested in aviation, but how did that interest get started? Like what made you get interested in aviation? I was saved when I was eight years old. Our pastor at Salem Bible Church in Salem, Michigan, was preaching on the book of Revelation. And I didn't like the, the sound of uh, what all the non-believers were going to be going through. I didn't like the sound of the lake of fire. And I kept raising my hand when it um when an appeal was given, if you want to accept Christ, you know, raise your hand. But I knew I wasn't saved by that. Mm. And that, that went on for maybe a month or two. And, and then one day, a missionary intern, Roy Jeffries, was uh, at our church. And he noticed me raise my hand. And he showed me from the Bible how I could accept Christ as my Savior. And that was at eight. A year later, I was in camp, summer camp. And there was a missionary there talking about missions. And, and I uh, decided that I'd like to be a missionary. I'd heard also about the five missionaries that were killed by the Rwani yeah. or Aka Indians, better known, in Ecuador. And I wanted to try to go take Nate Saint's place. I don't think I accomplished that, but that was the thing that started me was yeah. those. Yeah. Well, I can remember even I read what got me sparked off in missions aviation was you came to our church when I was like eight or whatever on a furlough. And, you, and it was it was when you had just started becoming like a missions aviation armor. You had a picture of the petrol. But then I read um, Nate Saint, or the book about Nate Saint. And those things just sort of clicked. And I was like, oh, like, you know, that sounds sort of neat. So obviously you, you did a lot of flying um, before you went to the missions field. Can you tell me about that? Like, how did you get commercial pilot and what types of airplanes? What types of stuff were you flying? Sure, Austin. We graduated from Moody they try to give you the experience you needed. We had a commercial pilot's license with instrument rating, single engine, 
and then you just need to get a little experience and be able to fly missions. But that, that didn't work out for me. And I was uh, working at an airport down in Oklahoma and a man walked in and decided he wanted to try to help me. And so I flew around with him in his old Seneca and one day it wouldn't start. And I went out and I was my AMP and, and was monkeying around with it. And I taxied it down to where he was waiting and it was going. And so he flew home and he started taking me with him and he gave me my multi-engine rating. So that helped yeah. a whole bunch. And then I started getting jobs flying pilot service or, uh, and then worked for a few small companies as a corporate pilot. That was down in Oklahoma during the oil field boom. At one time, Oklahoma was drilling over a thousand, had over a thousand wells, mostly gas, but some oil. And, and they were right next to Texas. Texas was maybe 1400. They were always bigger producer. And, and then in 84, I remember one week, three banks shut down in town. The economy was real bad. And yeah. We wound up moving back to Michigan and I started flying for Zantop International Airlines on a Lockheed Electra. Flew that for a few years and then moved over to the Convair. On the Electra, I started out as an engineer and then went to second, first officer, mm -hmm. uh, co-pilot. And, and then on the Convair, where then I started out as a co-pilot and then moved to captain. And then a little later, um, was laid off after nine years with Zantop. You know, yeah. a few months later, I guess about two months later, I hired on with Kitty Hawk International Airlines, mm -hmm. also flying freight in a Convair and then moved over to um, DC-9. So the last three years I was flying captain on the DC-9 for Kitty Hawk before yeah. going down to Brazil. Yep. Yeah, there was a, a Zantop's been out of business. It will run for a while now. But there's still, I think when I started working there, there was still an old Xantop Electra sitting off at the end of the field with all those engines and everything off. <laughs> but yeah. And one of, coincidentally enough, one of our B-25 pilots flew for Xantop and then he switched and then he switched to a major airline. But so what was it like going, obviously you started out, you weren't involved in missions in the first place. You weren't involved in missions aviation in the first place. Was that sort of humbling maybe to realize that God wanted you to take, like to take you in a different direction than you had originally thought or? Yeah, I really appreciate your asking that question. When I was 16, we were coming back from church. I remember our family had six kids and mom and dad and kind of crammed in the car and coming back. And my uh, second, the oldest brother asked me, would I be interested in being a missionary if I wasn't going to be a pilot? At that point already, I was interested in missionary aviation. And I didn't answer him because I was kind of embarrassed because I, I knew really I was looking forward to the adventure. Yeah. And I didn't answer that question for years and years and years. We went down in uh, 1999 and where we went there in Benjamin Constant in the state of, of Amazonas, Brazil. There was there were two planes there and they didn't have any pilots at that point. And yeah. both pilots were in the States. And yeah, well, they only had one that was actually in that area. So I thought I'd be going down and taking over one of those planes, mm -hmm. being able to work there with that second pilot. And that was, um, I, I was in language school in 2000, where then we moved to Benjamin Constant. We started out in Manaus and then went to Benjamin Constant. And I started working with uh, the director, Hank Skeltema, and getting kind of broke into mission, missionary aviation. Yeah. On Sundays, we would fly to a, a community or two. Uh, sometimes he'd drop me off and he'd fly over to another community. And he was letting me do some flying and get some experience and was doing some maintenance on it and painted the plane. And, and then uh, he came, went back, came back to the States and uh, 
Al Yoder was the one that had been down there and he, he came back and was with me for a little while. But they they built another hangar and he was going to down river about 100 miles. And so one plane stayed with me and one plane went with him. But I still didn't have my license to fly. 90 days after we got to Benjamin Constant, we went to Manaus to renew our visas because we only had visas for 30 days for 90 days at a time. And they said at that point that they would no longer renew my um, pilot's license because I didn't have a definitive time to stay there. They said I had to wait until mm. I had a permanent residence. Yeah, that didn't happen for the next four years. Right. And so um, finally, at the end of that first term, I went and got my pilot, private pilot's license and we came on furlough. And then we went back in 2005 or 2006, the, the equivalent of our Federal Aviation Administration down in uh, Brazil decided that our, our hangar wasn't worthwhile. It wasn't worthy to, to be doing maintenance on. And they yeah. grounded our planes and said we'd have to build a hangar on land. But that wouldn't work because it flooded. Sometimes mm -hmm. there was seven or eight feet of water in our yard yeah. during the flood season. So the aviation went by the wayside at that point. Yeah. So when you started to get, like, what was the type of stuff that you would consider, like the type of skills that you would consider missions aviation specific, as opposed to just flying in the state? Like, obviously, landing on a river with bends and turns in is probably one. But like, what are some other things that you had to like, get accustomed to, or you had to get used to or learn how to do? When when I started flying with my partner down in Santo Antonio do Isa, same state, but about 160 miles east down on the Amazon River. We came up with a operations manual mm -hmm. and we started defining things that you had to do. We had certain weather. We had a minimum. For example, if we're looking at a place, thinking about going in and landing there, the first thing you consider is how are you going to get out? Yeah. It's not a float plane. You're going to take more time getting off than you are at landing. You can get into places you can't get out of easily. And so we would time 30 seconds at 70 miles an hour. That's 100 feet per minute. So we get a strip of 3,000 feet that we could at least climb out. You know, you, yeah. you would be able to get up to your altitude because yeah, you could get up 100 feet. And if you a lot of times the river was much longer than that. But like you said, there's there's some curves and there's just some places you just can't go. Yeah. Obviously, you have to have enough water there, too. Sometimes rivers are low and they change every day. The river's different. It's yeah. going up or down or not usually staying the same. So those, those were things you had to keep in mind. There's no weather. You, yeah. you can't call somebody, you can't look up on a chart or something. And so you don't know what the weather is 100 miles away. Mm -hmm. You just have to, as you're flying along, you have a place to set down if you need to. Sometimes yeah. I've been going along and, and watching the weather ahead and the weather behind, and we've wound up landing on the river and waiting for things to clear up. Yeah. So those those are our big items. Uh, the time of day, a lot of higher temperature. It, of course, the hotter it is, the worse the plane's going to perform. Right. So yeah. those those are always accurate. But when you're out by yourself, you're not going to an airport that has the the length and the how, all the things that are there to to you know to make it an approved airport. If you yeah. land on the river, no, but nobody's. You're kind of like a test pilot, and you need to be careful where you go in. In and out of. As we were going, my um, partner that had more experience, much more experience, and started the program with the patrol, would show me how to get into different places. Would give me notes about, like this place, you don't try to dock. The river's too, 
to um, Swift. So you're going to have, they're going to come out in a canoe, a wooden canoe, and you got to not bump the plane with a canoe. We never did get a good picture of, of loading. You're just going down with the current and kind of watching to make sure you're not going to run into something. Because if yeah. you were, you'd have to break loose of the plane with the canoe, separate them and get the plane turned around. Yeah. Well, that's kind of, you don't think about doing that too much in the States. There's no brakes on the water. Yeah. You, you can't put the brakes on. As soon as you start that engine, you're moving. Yeah. Also, as we came in, I would shut down before I got to shore. And I, if I was by myself, I'd be paddling by myself. If I had a, a passenger, a pastor with me, we'd both have a paddle and we'd paddle together and see if we're going to be able to handle the current to get into where we were going to park. Yeah. If that didn't work, then you have to find someplace else. Right. Yeah. So what types of, um, obviously I know you're not doing medical lifts as much as maybe someone in say Africa, cause the need isn't there, but like what types of stuff are you out doing? Like what's your everyday sort of bread and butter sort of type thing that you're doing? Well, we don't fly every day. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the aviation is expensive and we use it when it's the best way to get there. Right. I had three different churches I was going to trying to go on a monthly basis. One of them I went on public transportation because of the time and getting on the boat and going there. And then I didn't have to worry about parking it or taking care of it. Mm -hmm. Another one, we went in the airplane because there was an airport there that was guarded. And when yeah. we went to communities from there, the communities were within eyesight. And they were, um, there weren't so many people there that would be a lot of traffic where we, the airplane would be safe. Mm -hmm. At least we safe enough for us one one yeah. that's another story for another time but uh and the third place i took a small boat and went to so three different churches that we were working with yeah and and yet each one was a different situation the airplane was where it wasn't feasible to get there another way mm -hmm. yeah so i also know you do a lot of like transportation and flying pastors around to different communities yes stuff like that can you talk about that a little bit uh, again, if there's public transportation, we would rather give them money to get on a boat. Yeah. And, and we really like them to take responsibility for getting themselves around. Right. But a lot of times in, in their boats, it would be a day or two days, and we could do it in an hour or less. Yeah. And so you could take a pastor out to a community that was isolated, and he was from a town nearby, Batania, that's a town of about 5,000 and they're, they're Takuna Indians. It's a Takuna Indian town, and we're welcome there. It's not on a reservation or anything. We can pick those pastors up and take them to other communities where they only speak Takuna, yeah. and I can't speak Takuna, so that, that worked out that way. Uh, one time I was asked by one of the pastors to take his son to a town to do business, and, and I said, I don't need to take a boat for that. That's not what the plane's for. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's, the, um, what's flying the petrol like? What's the airplane like in terms of performance and flying? It's almost 100 miles an hour cruise, has a 100 horsepower engine on it, uh, a Rotex uh, 912 carbureted. It has two carburetors on it, so you have to overhaul those every 200 flight hours. Yeah. The plane was um, 2013, so that's eight years ago, mm -hmm. and it's got just over 1,000 hours on it now, maybe 1,080 or something like that. Yeah. So in that many, you know, obviously we're not flying a whole lot of time. Right. Um, one time we were down for several months because of propeller problem. Mm. We, we were down for, for COVID. Some yeah. we didn't fly for probably three or four months during COVID. So it's a, a challenge to try to keep everything going. You're out there, you got to have fuel ahead and oil ahead and parts. 
we do our maintenance right there on the at the airport where the the town of Santo Antonio has its own strip. I believe it's about four thousand feet long, mm-hmm. paved, and we have the only hangar on the airport. And so you're kind of by yourself. I know my wife would worry about me if I was working out there after dark because there is uh, vandalism and robberies and yeah. stuff like that. So we tried not to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's it like? Um, like, can you walk me through if you're going to go and try and reach an isolated community? And obviously, you know, you've tried all your other options and planes the only way to get there. Like, how are you going to go? about finding a place to land on the river and then how, like, how are you going to park once you're there? Those are good questions. Uh, some of the places that were, I was first time going into the pastor that I was taking had been there by boat mm-hmm. and he wanted to go see if we could land because by boat, it was, uh, all day just to get there. And then of course all day to get home Yeah, and, and he worked during the week. And so he was a weekend warrior, mm-hmm. but he was a good pastor. He was running a church back there in Fonchiboa, which is about 120 miles east of Santo Antonio. So as we approached where we were going to go look at, we we're thinking about what time of year it is, how high is the lake, because this was a part of the river that was had swollen. In I don't think there were any dam, was any dam or anything, but it was basically a lake that we were were landing on at that point. And so we we're circling around looking and looking for obstructions and trying to judge how deep the water is, which mm-hmm. you can sometimes tell from above, you know, if it's something sticking up, wood, wood tends to get stuck easier yeah. <laughs> if it's more shallow. And so we flew around from above. We ran a 30 minute, a 30 second course each way to check our length. We have plenty of length. And then we tried approaching. Uh, and we just made a low pass. And then the next time we went ahead and landed, and it was fine. And we tied up, uh, we wound up tying up on the sh- to the shore and they had to come get us on a canoe because they were on a floating building. Yeah. And so that's, that's how that worked out. And at nighttime, we looked out and we could see the Cayman alligators, red eyes uh, around watching us, you know, we didn't go swimming right then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, ah, I had a thought, I lost it. So can you talk about obviously COVID impacted what you were doing in a big way. So can you kind of tell me like what happened and then how God saw you through that? Yes. In, um, in 2020, our, our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter came down to visit us in January and in uh, March, she, she was going to go, she was going to go first just for a month. And then she decided to stay until March and we had a, one of our unmarried daughters was going to come down and visit us and COVID showed up just before then. So yeah. granddaughter wound up staying and, and the daughter couldn't come visit us. Mm-hmm. And then we were stuck for three, three or four months. Yeah. And we basically didn't do anything. We didn't go to church. We'd had our church service in the house, but we had our granddaughter with us. So it was, it was a good time. And she had a very good attitude about it, but we couldn't go visit people. And I'm talking to pastors that we worked with, you know, and they're ready to go fly when we can, but, it, being Americans and then flying into an Indian community, if they got COVID and we'd get blamed for it. So we just pretty yeah. much shut down. I was doing discipleship. That was my main job while I was in Brazil. I had five different men that I was discipling. And some of these guys were married. Some were maybe just about teenage, 19, 20 years old. And so we spent quite a bit of time studying the Bible together with these guys weekly. And that had to shut down too during COVID. 
we were trying to stay healthy at that point. We were over 60, my wife and I, and so they, we were considered at risk and yeah. we were living with a daughter and her husband and they did the shopping and paid the bills for us because we, we couldn't get out. You know, mm -hmm. we're just trying to follow recommendations. Then as things started loosening up a little bit and we were able to go back out again and start going, I remember one day flying to several different communities and we took off from one community going to another. And just before we got there, a, a float plane from Manaus had come in. I think it was a caravan mm -hmm. and had picked up someone that had died. And I just thought, man, out here on the river, how are these people being exposed to COVID? But it was it was yeah. all over. And yeah. different communities were affected in different ways, but we had a lot of pastors died and and some other people, some dads. We, we remember uh, we were praying for this dad of 12 kids and God took him home. He was uh, in missionary work, just in others, mm -hmm. you know, God spared. So it was a, a time of heart searching and it wasn't, uh, we never intended to come back to the States during COVID because we were content being there. Mm -hmm. And then finally at the end, my, my wife got COVID and, and I was um, having a heart arrhythmia. And so they wanted me to go to Manaus and then fly back to the States because Manaus was real bad with COVID. And I didn't want to go right away because I wanted my wife to get over what she had, you know, and go with me. Yeah. And then they decided, you, you better go. You could have a stroke. And so I listened and went and I wound up having COVID too, so I couldn't come back to the States. Yeah. And then those were the last few months that we were down in Brazil. And once we got tested clear of COVID, and then we came back to the States. But my wife had to have be medically flown out and our, our little plane wouldn't make the trip to Manaus. It's our, our plane has a range of a little under four hours. And yeah. so it, you know, probably about 350 miles would be about the longest and it's about double that to Manaus. So that wouldn't be a good way to go. No. And it takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so that we were glad for the airport because a Cessna caravan came in a medevac and took her out with two doctors and a nurse and our daughter was another nurse. So she had a lot of people on board with her. Yeah. But at that point she was real bad. She was in isolation for 10 days in Manaus and she lived and we went back and packed up and came back to the States. Yeah. Yeah. I was crazy. I remember getting your, um, your prayer update letters and it was like every week there's a new turn or whatever, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I think obviously God made it, you know, known at least around here, you know, and I think COVID really showed the sovereignty of God in a big way. Yes. But yeah. So looking back, like over all of your flying experience, is there one, maybe one or two stories that stick out to you one or two days that were a little bit maybe abnormal <laughs> or that you remember? Yeah, there's... There's uh, some times when you felt like, um, well, I, I just innumerable times I came home from teaching the pastors at a seminary, the, the Indian pastors, and we were going through the first five books of the Bible. And I had taught that for 10 years here at Calvary before going down there. And I thought, you know, after 10 years, it was kids, first grade class or something like that. But I, I still learn things every week. And, and it amazed me. And I'd come back and, and tell my wife, thank you for letting us be here. And she wasn't going out with me to the villages or the other towns, but she was uh, keeping the home fires burning and, you know, mm -hmm. taking good care of me. And she was working with other women and helping at the hospital and helping with a lot of different cooking projects. 
and we, she had young people over sometimes for um, cooking class and just in a number of ways she was a, a good helper. But I knew it wasn't, you know, she probably would have been just fine being a mom here in the States. But even when we were dating, she said she had given her life to the Lord if he would call her to missions. And of course, that encouraged me as a young man dating her. Yeah. So those, those kind of situations, you know, you're talking to somebody in class, you're flying with somebody along the way. Uh, we're sitting at, at somebody's table eating breakfast, for example, and, and talking. Um, one of the last trips, the last ministry trip I made with the Petrel, we were having breakfast and planning on and heading back to Santo Antonio. I'd be dropping the pastor off in Fonchiboa, and then I'd be heading back a little less than an hour and a half back to Santo Antonio from Fonchiboa. And the man we were talking to says, I want to accept Christ as my savior. Mm-hmm. And he, to my knowledge, he was the first one that had gotten saved during the three years that we were visiting that community. There were Christians there and we always, people were interested in talking, but nobody made the commitment. And so his name's Jose, Jose. And that was, of course, very exciting for me. It was yeah. also the last flight I made with Pastor Neh, who was the right. Brazilian pastor. He died of COVID a couple months later. You just, you know, God's in control and that makes it okay yeah so obviously you've been a pilot you're a pilot and everything do you have one or two really good flying stories that you remember i don't know what makes a good flying story i think it's a good flying story when nothing happens on the whole trip and you know yeah (laughs) you have a tailwind both directions that's that's i don't know why we we always want tailwinds but we like to fly you know take longer if there was a headwind right yeah oh not not too much exciting happened he even yeah we didn't i didn't feel like i ever had an emergency situation with the patrol for example uh sometime the the one time i wasn't flying we were at a conference and some boats had come in a couple of 50 passenger wooden boats with a i guess 120 horsepower motor about in them and, and they brought they'd been 16 hours getting to where we got in a half an hour Wow. but coming to inaugurate a new church and the wind was blowing and we had little storms coming through all day long. And now it's about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And, and one of those big boats pulled loose the, the post that it was tied to came loose out of the ground. And, and that boat pulled the other one loose and there's about 10 canoes behind him. And oh. all of that starts coming downwind towards the airplane yeah. and the airplane is as far as I can get it away from them, but there's trees uh, if I untied it, it's going to blow into the trees with that wind. Mm-hmm. And I hollered, start the motors on, on, the, on the big boats. And then, you know, with their propellers going, they were able to hold against the wind. And they got them back up and got them tied up. And I remember just going to where, where I had my hammock and mosquito net tied up and having a prayer meeting right then and saying, Lord, there's more people coming. If you take this weather out before dark, I'll, I'll take off and, and head back to San Antonio. I think it's going to get dangerous and there's still wind coming through and storms yeah. coming through and at night there was going to be more boats packing and more chance of a, a wooden boat against the patrol and it wouldn't stand a chance you know i wouldn't be flying yeah. it out of there and it calmed down about a half an hour later i took off and went back to santo antonio and i was able to go around the storms it wasn't a problem so that was probably the biggest it wasn't flying but uh, yeah that that's the biggest problem with the airplane is trying to take care of it when you get there and that determined whether or not we went sometimes. Sometimes we just drop somebody off and then come back because there wasn't a suitable place to park the plane. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was interesting. I remember um, 
Yeah, so so when you were back flying, what was flying out of Willow Run like? Obviously, of Xantop and some of the other small companies they work for. Like, what was that like? Do you feel like, well, let me ask you this, actually. Did you try, right after you graduated from college, did you try and go after missions right away? Yes. I was planning on, I, I graduated in July of, of 1976. And in the following May, I was going to go try with Mission Aviation Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And instead, I'd gotten engaged and I got married in the following August. Yeah. And so the following January, my wife and I both went out, and that'd be in 78. And MAF wanted me to get more flight experience because I graduated from Moody and hadn't done much flying since. I was flying, I was working as a mechanic and a mm-hmm. flight instructor. Well, I, we moved to Oklahoma and started working in a, with a college there doing the flight flying and some pilot service, but mostly just instructing. And when I went back, they said, no, you need to where you're pilot in command and go in places, not just teaching somebody else how to fly. Yeah. And so I went back and then, then a job opened up doing, um, being the corporate pilot for a small company, taking care of the airplane and flying. I thought, well, now I've got the experience I need. And, and MAF called up one day, one of the guys called up and said, um, we've been reviewing your file and we would advise you not to go with MAF. And they gave an example. I'd be flying along and at the end of the day, you know, I'm tired and I got two people on board and we're asked to go pick up a snake bite victim. They said, you'd be real tempted to go in. When you get there, the wind's contrary. It's a wet strip and you would sacrifice a plane and two people. That would be a hard decision for you to make. I could identify with that because yeah. I knew that compassion. And so I didn't, didn't go back to Mission Aviation Fellowship and waited um, just looking for the Lord's leading. Yeah. But this is a good time to put in. I never felt like my mission flying was any more important than flying for the freight airlines. Yeah. Because sometimes we had Bible studies. I had guys write me when I was down there that I'd flown with. Uh, several of them supported us while we were down in Brazil. It, there's, you know, we can serve the Lord in any occupation. Right. And I felt very privileged to be able to, to um, be, have the last four years working in mission aviation. In um, January of 2016, I finally answered that question. My brother asked me when I was 16 years old. And I said, Lord, I love flying and, and I wouldn't have come if I'd have known. And I felt like crying because I would have given up 16 years of missionary life and raising our four younger kids yeah. down in Brazil, two of them married Brazilians, one of them still there. Mm-hmm. And um, that would have been terrible. Yeah. So even though it didn't work out like I thought it would, I was content in January of 2016. And then interesting enough, in, in November of 2016, God opened the doors for us to go get involved in missionary aviation. Yeah. So what was it like flying at the airlines? What were, again, I'm a mechanic, I'm a nerd about airplane engines and all performance and stuff like that. So can you talk a little bit about the airplanes you were flying with the freight companies? A little bit. Uh, Lockheed Electra was the first one that I flew for Zantop as an engineer and, and then as an FO. I was pretty impressed. We moved to San Antonio, Texas to fly log air uh, out of Kelly Air Force Base, which is now closed. And I had a little Toyota Celica, 1974 Toyota Celica, and they just picked it up with a forklift and stuck it on the Electra. And when I got there, then they forklifted it back off and I drove it from Dallas we were down down to uh, San Antonio. I didn't couldn't get a flight down to San Antonio because that was just a fixed route. The, yeah. the Lockheed Electras that were flying log air for the Air Force 
didn't didn't leave and go somewhere else and so i couldn't fly my car all the way to where i was going but it was just kind of neat you know to have your transportation yeah. along with you and it just took one of about six positions and, and they had them the pallets on rollers so that they could move freight around they had two doors on the planes front one and a back one so mm -hmm. it made it quick for unloading and going and we did eight hours of flying in log air and it was always fun to go watch the air shows we went to about six different bases i can't remember where all they are i know we went through albuquerque we went through I believe it was Tucson, Arizona. I was trying to remember the other places, but we we did in about a 12 hour shift, we did eight hours of flying. And, and so we could only fly 12 days a month, 96 hours, 100 hours is maximum. Yeah. And so you flew your 12 hours and then you had 18 days off. <laughs> not not yeah. off in a row, but you know, because yeah. we had three crews down there, we could trade around so you can get a week off without any problem. And it was great flying out west, you know, usually good weather, mm -hmm. sometimes bad, but so I enjoyed that a lot. I came back from flying the, they, they actually shut down. They, they wanted, they said they went to jet some, somebody with the DC nine or something got, right. got the routes. And so about a year after we got down there, we wound up moving back to Detroit and then we were flying ad hoc. And after they called you within an hour, you needed to be in the air. Mm -hmm. And so it was good to live nearby and always have your bag packed with you, whatever we went to do. My wife maybe was going to go drop me off or something, you know, to, you had to be within reach but until they called you you were you were free mm -hmm. well, that was kind of interesting and different yeah i remember when i checked out as captain on the conveyor the czech airman that was riding with me giving me my initial operating experience they give you 25 hours of initial operating experience and as i got to the end of my time i i let the czech airman know you know if you're not comfortable with me i'd be glad for you to fly some more and said well we'll see mm -hmm. on that flight we had to do a precautionary engine shutdown and so he landed with just one engine and it, everything went real smoothly he says, you still want me to ride around with you some more? And I go, no, it's up to you. You know, it's okay. Yeah. But that's just, God uses sometimes those things for confidence builders. Yeah. And so that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up here. But looking back, is there one maybe piece of advice that you could give to someone like that you've seen, maybe something that God has shown you throughout your work that you would pass on or just a general piece of advice? If you're interested in missions, take all the advantages you can to serve now. Yeah. I, I had a list of different things I'd done as in churches, you know, Sunday, teaching Sunday school and working with different groups and with um, sometimes getting opportunities to preach or work with the deacons, you know, speaking for a while, trustee for a while, sometimes maintenance. It's whatever you do will help you on the mission field because things are going to come up that you just never dreamed. You know, you don't expect yeah. that you're going to be putting your own water tower in or replumbing the house or redoing the electrical or setting electrical up for the first time, or perhaps putting the first toilet in a place that community that you're at, that they've just, we always went out in the jungle. And then one day we mm -hmm. put in a tank and a, for the sewer and, and made a bathroom and shower and a toilet. And then others started springing up too, and they saw how to do it. Yeah. So get, get the experience you can and, let God lead you. Mm -hmm. If you're married, God will call your wife too. You know, it's it's not, I'm going to go do this. It's being willing if God opens the doors for you, taking advantage of yeah. it gives you. Yeah. So is there anything that I have not talked about that you think um, we should talk about or that I maybe forgot? Or Well, Hank Skeldema, who was our aviation director I mentioned, would say uh, two F words, flexibility and faithfulness. And if you can remember that, that you're flexible and be faithful, 
my wife got something out of some book and she put up on the refrigerator a little sign that said, because we're always getting interruptions, There's all these interruptions. And, and I mean, it happened in the States too, but even more so on the mission field. And uh, the, the little quote was, it may help us to understand that the things that we look at as interruptions to our ministry are our ministry. Yeah. You, you don't know when God's going to bring an opportunity up. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Final question that people always have a little bit of fun with. If you could, if you had the ability to time travel and a blank check, what three airplanes would you buy for your own? And let's assume, let's assume that you have an, your own private hangar or whatever, but what three airplanes would you choose? Oh my goodness. Well, in the States, I probably wouldn't pick a patrol because it's, not that efficient under yeah. <laughs> horsepower. I, I'm not even sure I can pass my medical right now. So I, 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 I guess I would get a J3 Cub. That's yeah. always been, you know, you can land in a field or fly with the door open. I like that a lot. Um, I'd probably look into some experimental to travel around, visit the grandkids. Something that would be um, probably retractable. I haven't looked at them at all. You know, I haven't mm. <laughs> didn't have that possibility. Yeah. And I always found it was better to fly for somebody else and not own your own airplane. But you know, if you got a blank check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna go ahead and wrap up the recording part again. Thanks for um, coming out and recording me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Austin. You've been listening to the Aeronaut Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe, and we'll be back in 10 days with another great interview. So long.